Well, no, of course he's not really. He's made of a, a sock. I mean, how can he be really? I know he seems alive, but he's not. It's the brilliant performance by Dan Ertz. The arty award-winning performance, outstanding performance by Dan Ertz that makes him come alive. Tyrone the puppet. I know I spent all last time talking about it and talking to Dan and talking to Tyrone. But this time, I've actually seen the show and oh my gosh, I've never laughed so hard. Well, I shouldn't say I've never laughed so hard, but... It's probably as hard as I've ever laughed for a show with other people around. It it, it was just a terrific, funny, moving, impressive show. So if you don't have your tickets yet, I, I strongly suggest you get on the website right now, roadlesstraveledproductions.org, and get yourself a ticket to hand to God. Believe me, you won't be sorry. It was, it's, but listen, this is the reason why I'm talking to you about this now is because today I've got the playwright, Rob Askins himself, is going to be here to talk about his career, his life, everything that's happened to him before and after, and to God, Rob Askins is here to talk to us all about it here on Off-Road. But I also have to warn you that, the, you know, there are some swears in here. So this is a PG-13, more like PG-15. Uh, but well, well worth it. I didn't want to cut a word of what the man said. Let's not waste any more time. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Off-Road, RLTP's playwright for this show, Hand to God. It's Rob Askins. Hello, Rob. Good to meet you. May I call you Rob? I'm not sure what you prefer. Totally, man. No problem at all. <laughs> well, it's very nice to meet you. I am I was, I'm so looking forward to this, I have to tell you, because as you may or may not know, I'm an actor in Buffalo. Mm-hmm, I do. I am not in, I'm not in hand to God, which is reopening in November, uh-huh. but I, I have done other work and I am just, and I, I don't say this to blow smoke, I'm just in tremendous admiration of writers and uh, those who create the form that I find so much joy in. And and we should talk about Hand to God, and we will eventually, because it's sort of rocket to success is something that is amazing. I mean, starting at the Ensemble Studio Theater, then Off-Broadway, and Obie Award, then On-Broadway, then Tony nominations, Olivier nominations, and then being one of the most widely produced plays in all of 2016 is it's amazing to me and i'm sure it it's got to be a source of great pride to you but as i'm blathering along here <laughs> the point of all this is that i really i i really want to talk to you about about you yeah sure I, I love talking to writers about their process where they came from how it started and that's that's really what I what I want to get into today, if if you don't mind, and and we'll spend time talking on hand to God about hand to God as well. But you know, yeah. I don't want I don't want to give away too much. Yeah, this interview will probably air. Well, air <laughs> will be released. It'll drop in the mm-hmm. kids' lingo. The interview will drop probably November eighth, which is four days after Hand to God reopens. So anyway, 
Welcome to Off Road, Rob. <laughs> hey, I'm glad to be here. <laughs> now, Peter, are you going to stop talking and let me talk? No. Well, listen. Let, let's let's. If you don't mind, I want to talk about your background. I, I know you're a Texas guy. I am. Which automatically just you know Texas, you get these images in in your head, and Cypress. Texas, which is, I understand, is near Houston. Mm-hmm. Would you consider it a small town? Uh, it's, but yes and no. I mean, the way it, um, so Houston is a center, is a, a series of concentric circles. Okay. Different roads. And then there are just spokes that are shot through it. And as oil and gas workers mm-hmm. moved into the area, they filled it up and were pushed further and further out. And so my my family was... My grandfather was a, a farmer and uh, and my mother was a nurse and they moved from a place near the Red River called Vernon. And a lot of the family moved sort of en masse. My grandfather built the houses and it was in Cyprus was like one of the satellite communities on one of these little rings. But as people came further and further out, it became more and more part of a Houston. So oh, I see what had been like. A sort of insular kind of church community, a little bit on the edge. Suddenly, you know, by the time I was growing up, there were ExxonMobil executives in the fancy uh. suburb, <laughs> a couple of streets over, you know what I mean? Which was both good. And I mean, it was very good for me because it sort of changed the nature of the environment and was mixing with different kinds of people, diversity um, of background. But at heart, like the church was the center of, of my young life. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we're just heavily involved. I was in a church choir. I was in the kids choir when I was very young, we were, <laughs> we were on the radio and then of course the puppet ministry. And then I did a little preaching and it was, you know, I think it much has been made about if you are a theatrically inclined young person and you grow up in the South, the church is one of the avenues where you can get out a love of pageantry, mm-hmm. song, performance, storytelling. Absolutely. So, <laughs> and for me, I, you know, it's very interesting to be people um, who their first theatrical experience was going to see into the woods with the original cast, right? Like, <laughs> A lot of my New York friends, they're like, oh, I remember seeing yes. Virginia Wolf. I remember seeing whatever, right? I love all, love all those things, right? But for me, it was like, it was bad church drama. <laughs> and, and the thing that that engenders is very different because the audience performer relationship between German Lutheran pastor <laughs> on Sunday morning and B.B. Newirth is very different. <laughs> Yeah, there's, there's a, a little bit of a gap there. Right. And like Baby North is trying to save your soul, but she's doing it in a different way. Yeah. And in a different um, costume, I might add. In a much better costume. Mean, <laughs> so, yes. yeah. So coming at it through this, um, and we want to talk about poor theater, poor theater, what theater is poorer than church drama. Hmm. And so, it, yeah, it's just, it's very interesting. And the people, the appetite for um, big crunchy emotion, like big sort of like juicy, strange, melodramatic, badly dialogued swings in the church. You know, the things that the things that will get you get people on their feet do not have to be theatrically sophisticated to uh, to move one, to get one to the altar call. 
you know? Yes. Now, when you talk about church drama, you're not talking, you're not talking about like when I was a kid, I was in CYO and they performed plays and so on. You're talking about part of the pageantry of the church experience itself, correct? Both. Oh, both. both. Okay. I think that's one, and what that's one of the wonderful. I used to teach it. I used to teach a class about rage content and structure, right? Like about how emotional content gives you uh, the ability to change the tradition that you're in, right? Like if you feel something, if you feel if you're making theater and you feel some of your writing, right? If you feel something so intensely, and then you learn your craft to such a degree, your emotions can bend the history of story around you, right? I see. Mr. Albee's rage, Mr. Albee's feelings uh, changed American theater, right? He changed the dinner party play. He created the American dinner party play with Virginia Woolf. <laughs> he created the two people in the park play. There's a lot of things that he did and because of his emotional content. And one of the first parts of that is how to you how to cross the imaginary line, how to cross the fourth wall. Like you are in the audience and then you are on stage, right? Like what does it take to, you need to tell your message. You need to tell your story enough to risk the humiliation and danger that come with being on stage, being center stage, being in the light. It's not something most people automatically want. <laughs> and then of course there are the rest of it, but there's something really interesting because the, you can, if you're a kid, if you're a five-year-old, you can run up onto the church, the sanctuary, right? You can run after, after the church is over, right? After the service is over right. and run up there and you can feel what it's like to stand on that place. The boundary isn't quite as strict as it is right. in, in a professional theatrical environment or, or, or whatever. So it, it tempts the already theatrical, right? The effect of being in bad puppet drama in your church, <laughs> it's not as high stakes, right? Like you will make a jackass of yourself, but that's sort of like, that's part and parcel. Like that's, that's going to happen anyway. Mm -hmm. It's not even like being in the school musical where you stand up and then you'll be judged for the next four years because you were awkward while you were singing. I don't know. Um, yeah, something from Into the Woods, I'm sure. Exactly right. Are you, so are you telling me that this was as early as as five, you were starting to be drawn to this, you know, this mecca of entertainment and 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 performance and as you call it, pageantry? Oh, God, yes. Yeah. I mean, it's it's because it's the it was the most colorful thing in my life because I couldn't go see Into the Woods. Mm hmm. You know, my grandfather was a, like I said, he was a Dürer German farmer. And my mother was a nurse and my father was a nurse. My father collected militaria. Uh, my aunt did, she was a costume designer and she worked in Dallas. So every once in a while, uh, she would sort of come down from this other metropolis with stories <laughs> of the low life, the, the theatrical, the, the struggles of a person trying to make money in theater in Texas. <laughs> but it uh, it was like that in the movies, like the only places where things were lifted, where they were louder, where they were ritual, where they took on a secondary meaning. And for 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 me, uh, that 
helped me understand life, like why we live, right? Like for me, pageantry and theater storytelling always were a place where I was, I was fed Mm -hmm. emotionally. I was a bright kid. I was an obnoxious kid. I wanted (laughs) to be looked at. I needed a lot, you know, I needed a lot. And so I was a kid that would climb up on the altar afterwards and who would sing too loud and who was like, I was very hungry and searching. And that was the only place where I could be a part of it. Movie theaters were wonderful, but I wasn't going to be able to cross the barrier between myself and the screen. Right. Sure as shit could get up there and sing too loud and <laughs> pull a face. Yes. And uh, perhaps that, get a laugh. Maybe, maybe two, maybe two. <laughs> but yeah, yes, absolutely. So oh, there's that, nothing like that feeling that first time you get, wait, wait a minute. Yeah. I, I just got a reaction. I said, this might be something I could do. Was this connected? Uh, did your mom run the, the puppet ministry in the in the church? Yeah. A, a, was that in your early days as well? I mean, we're, we're talking about way back when you were five, but but I, I'm sure it went on. And then because, as you said, you ended up doing a little preaching as well. Yeah. So your mom runs the puppet ministry. And then, then do you actually get involved in that and that as a performance art? Because I know you were a performer before you were a, a writer for sure. Yeah. Is that where yeah. that all started? Absolutely. Uh, she, my mother, it like, obviously this, the hand of God is not autobiography. <laughs> I hope not. But my mother was, you know, it's a strange thing. The church takes in a lot of money. They're looking for places to put that money. They want to reach out to the kids. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you go online and I, I don't know if you have, but there's like, they just sell these script books for puppets and they sell these already made puppets. And there is, uh-huh. there's a whole culture in the South of puppet ministries. I had no idea. Yeah. So my mother had found out about this and, you know, I was a little drama queen and she just, uh, there was like three of us in that way. The play is very accurate to what happened when my mother tried to start at the puppet club. Um, <laughs> Did she do it because she thought here's something little Robbie might get a kick out of or might enjoy no, doing? No, I think she was trying to uh, participate in the church, hmm. but also there's, there's status stuff. Yes. Like how do you how do you become a more influential member? My grandmother was wildly was wildly central. She was the pastor's secretary for a while, which holds an incredible amount of power in a small <laughs> church. And I think my mother was looking for her her own niche. I see. And if it happened to coincide with something that, you know, that Robbie could enjoy as well. Okay, good. Absolutely. Absolutely. So this did this continue into your well, I assume it it went through grade school and then in high school, were you like doing the high school musicals and getting your standing ovations and things as they all do? No, I mean, it was it was strange because I I was drawn more towards visual arts uh, coming out of so did all the church stuff. Puppet ministry was made, and this is the straight, it was like maybe nine months, like in, in my entire childhood. But a huge and, effect. <laughs> I mean, it, it it planted something in your head. Well, there's a, I was also, I also had a, uh, anyway, I was held back a year. Okay. This was a sort of an uncovered memory. I was held back a year. And so, you know, you, you, I had a summer birthday. It was all this kind of thing. And the school counselor, I'm trying to remember her name doesn't matter she had a puppet that she would use she had a, she had a therapy puppet 
It was a dolphin. The dolphin's name was Do So. And you had to sing to the goddamn thing. You had to sing to the thing to make it come out. So you had a little cardboard, a little cardboard underseat cage. Is this supposed to help you th- th- therapeutically or, or scare the crap out of you? It scars you for life, and then you write about it, and you get an Olivier nomination. <laughs> that was their plan all along. Oh, I saw, oh brilliant. Really, such foresight, such prescience <laughs> to be able to see down the road, and maybe in 2015 yeah. this yeah. will happen. Oh, yeah, that's, that is wonderful. The that is... Independent School District was trying to fuck a kid up just <laughs> perfectly, and they did. And they did. Success, you know, another uh, Rob Askin success story. Exactly right. <laughs> they got your picture up on the wall. I'm sure at the high school. And well, well the, I was going to. They talk should. To I was going to talk to their theater teachers. Uh, we had scheduled a Zoom conference with me and like 18 of their theater teachers. And I, I go back. My mother still lives in Cyprus, so I go back a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it was anyway. So, I, you know, I was into um, visual arts. I ended up going to there's an arts high school, an arts magnet school in downtown Houston mm-hmm. uh, called HSPVA. And I went there for one year before my father passed. And then I went back to Cyprus. And that was just very obviously disorienting. It was very, it impacted the family in, in, a, in a big way. And it took me a very long time to uh, sort of not even get my bearings, but just to be a functional member of any kind of community. Mm-hmm. And I started doing plays during that time um, for the high school, but I was... I was all over the place. You know what I mean? I was, I was, I was drinking and, and, you know, doing drugs and, you know, just self-medicating Sure. Um, around that grief. Yeah. So, and then, and then I went from Fair to Baylor university, which is a very, very Baptist school in Waco, Texas. And, and was there a reason for, why, for that choice? Just because it was nearby. It's not really nearby, but it's, you know, fairly close to, to Houston. My aunt, by that time had gotten a job teaching costume design there. Oh, and, uh, she uh, got me, got me some scholarships. (laughs) Nice. It was really important that, that like we needed help paying for shit. Of course. And, and, uh, you know, I had had some good test scores, but I was also busy, uh, pretending to be James Dean and, uh, (laughs) So, yeah, so I, I got to go and it was one of those, it was just a strange, it was, a, it's a strange place. Yeah. Baylor is a strange, strange place. It's, <laughs> I, it, I'm still, I'm still grappling with it. I see. But it, because it, it, again, in like the crucible of things and the things that make you and the, all of this, like, but you know, after my father passed, my relationship and my faith was very um, rocky, mm-hmm. you know, but I didn't mm-hmm. start preaching until afterwards. So, again, the desire for uh, catharsis, the desire to share, you know, uh, we were not we were not people that would go to therapy. You know, we were not therapy people. Right. We were church people. So if you're going to talk about your feelings, the context is is in it's in the religious context. Mm-hmm. Why I wasn't I wasn't going to um, a licensed social worker, but I sure as shit would go on a youth group weekend and stand up when I got the spirit and then speak for 10 minutes. Oh, and so it was a way to, it was a way to get these feelings out. But like a lot of young people who are coming out of the church or in their relationship to the church had huge questions, huge questions, huge philosophical, theological questions that just, that still have not been answered to this day. Right. They're, they're unanswerable basically. That's right. 
and Chris and American Christianity is pretty sloppy and hateful. <laughs> and I, you know, hot, hot take of the day, but like, there's a lot of gross stuff going on in the American church, which is different from like, whatever, whatever Christianity actually is, or actually hopes to be all of those things. The, there's beautiful, beautiful ideas in that religion as in all religions, but we, we make such a mess of it, such a mess yes. of it here. Yes. Um, anyway, regardless. So yeah. So then I went from sort of this, like, uh, this sort of like crucible kind of like this muddy bubbling desire to relate to other people through the, the lens of, of religion to Baylor university, which is, it's phenomenal amounts of money. It's phenomenal really? amounts of Texan religious prestige, you know, very like uh, it's, it, there's a, a, a whole thing like, you know, Waco used to be a cotton center. They still have a debutante ball. You as a theater, as a theater kid, when I went there, you were press ganged into, it's called the P cotton palace pageant. Oh dear. Um, yeah. Imagine, <laughs> um, imagine a debutante ball meeting waiting for Guffman. <laughs> You have you have the history of Waco being told in song and dance about the hungover theater kids. Oh my god! And then when you get to the end of this performance, which has had to be re rewritten several times because of content, mm -hmm. um, then you get this geriatric, this ninety-year-old man walking a sixteen-year-old girl through the auditorium. Like it is. It's fucking pagan, man. It's like it's gross. It's gross capitalistic paganism. It's 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 wild. Anyway, so so that so that. Mm -hmm. But it was there that I started. Um, there's a uh, there's a secret society um, that is attached to a comedy magazine. So one of these like blue blood institutions went through a little revolution in the sixties and they started putting out a satire paper. And because the Baptists are so hateful, you have to, you can't publish under your real name and you can't let your face be seen. So you put on a mask and you choose a pen name. Okay. So it's, it's odd and broke. Everything about Waco is strange. And so, but I, I started writing comedy for the first time. So I'd gone from sort of doing doing fine arts, drawing and painting, and and all the church art, and then I, you know, high school high school plays, and then I got to Baylor, and I was I thought I was an actor, so okay, I'm gonna, and then of course I, I what I what I actually was was a destructive tornado who couldn't remember his lines. <laughs> okay, so an awful garbage person, and then I started writing comedy, and I started uh, for for the consumption of the of the campus. And to your earlier point, like I remember very clearly, I'd written an article that I liked, but I walked into the green room of the theater department and heard one of the uh, students reading it aloud to the room. Oh no. And I was like, this is it. This is it. Motherfuckers. <laughs> like, this is, this is the real stuff. This is mass. This is mass produced. You know what I mean? Like, Everywhere across the campus, people were enjoying that article, which was published. Where? Well, first of all, what was your what was your pseudonym? You must have had something, and and uh, the face was not known. So, where was it actually published? Okay, so we would self publish. We uh, okay. published our own. So you know, um, wow, it was an, <laughs> it was good. It was it was good training for things that I would fuck up later. But it was, so I, be, I I eventually became the editor. But you would get. 
Okay. People would complain all the time about the quality of that paper, but we were 25 young people going to school full time. Most of us were, were drunks. And so in theater majors and theater majors as well. Theater majors, business majors, pre-law. This was oh, it was a wide swath okay. of campus uh, degenerates, and so, so okay. So you've got it. You've got, so so any group of people, any group of people, there are going to be okay. Uh, uh, so you, you've got twenty group of high school college people, college folks. Um, about half of them uh, can stop drinking long enough to write. About <laughs> half of that group can write a sentence. Ooh. They can write a, a well-structured sentence. Okay. Half of that group <laughs> might be able to write a joke. I said maybe. We're down to maybe three people. <laughs> if you've got someone who can put down the bottle, write regularly, write funny, yeah. and then manage to bring all that together to meet a fucking deadline. Oh, wow. You've met Jesus Christ. <laughs> you have met the second coming of Richard Pryor. You've met like, like those people are so rare. And trying to corral those people to make 20 pages once every uh, two months. And I got to tell you, it's not that different from running a TV show when you eventually get there. You know what I mean? anyway. Which we'll get to, I, I hope. Yes. Sure, 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 sure. So, but uh, yeah, so we would put out this um, newsprint magazine once every two months. We got advertisers it's because at Baylor, because it's a Baptist school, you can't advertise any business that sells booze in the official paper. Mm -hmm. So all the bars and restaurants and liquor stores came to us. So we made phenomenal amounts of money off of our little comedy rag. Oh, we threw these outrageous parties. Um, anyway. And so that's how we did it. And I started writing comedy there and it was, it was very strange. What was the piece about, I mean, what, what, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to get too into the weeds. Wanna, okay. All right. Well, but it, but it, just out of, was it, was it about a, a campus situation or something on the college yeah, that yeah, yeah, was it recognizable? Was, it was Baylor. Oh my God. Southern colleges love to keep their mascots on campus. Okay. So like LSU has a tiger. Okay. Baylor has a bear. Of course. Baylor has, at the time I was going to school, that they had two bears living in a pit <laughs> outside the student union building. You know what they had around that pit? I, a chain link fence. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> you know who was taking care of those bears? Students. S some drunks, I imagine. Yeah. It was listen. It, it phenomenal to me. If you had really wanted to suicide by bear, it would have been so easy. Wow. Um, and anyway, so I I wrote a piece about the state of the, and they call it the bear pit. Um, I, I wrote a, a piece about the state of the bear pit, where it was like it was. I took the lyrics to Bear Necessities from the Jungle Book. Yes. <laughs> it was a point counterpoint. So one bear was saying this, and then the other bear said. Fuck you, Baloo, you sell out. We live in a pit in the ground. And it was like, it was, so it was very sort of, it was very caustic. It was very like, anyway, it was a fun piece. Had you written before this? Was Are you telling me that this was your first foray into the written word and and hearing people laugh at your words? This was the, this well, was the beginning of it? 
I didn't know I was funny for a very long time. <laughs> I was just so strange and so mean. And I think something happened in that process. I was also like, I don't know where to put a comma, even to this day. Uh. So in school, when especially especially when that's the focus is spelling and commas. Yes. People can miss the fact that you can write. You know what I mean? I understand. I would get these papers back that were just covered in red. And even when I became editor of that campus comedy paper, my spelling was a barrier sometimes to more serious appreciation. So it was, I had, I had an idea that I was not a good writer and that I was not good with verbal communication or written communication because of what school wants you to be and do. Now we live in a, an age of Grammarly and spell check. Mm-hmm. Probably the only reason I can be gainfully employed. Wow. So we did this, we did this paper and then our, our theater company, our theater department had a 10 minute play contest. And I was like, okay, I'd obviously studied a lot of plays. I'd read a lot of plays. I wanted to be an actor you know, but I never tried my hand at it because it's, um, you know, when you want something so bad, when you love something so much, mm-hmm. I would just absolutely. Yeah. Edward Albee was a goal in and of himself. Right. Sure. Yeah. It's one, it's one of those things where when you're, when you're growing up in a place that's removed from a lot of these cultural institutions, you're not hearing some of the voices that exist I was hearing very little and seeing very little that reflected um, my inner emotional state. Like you can go see action movies and you can watch cartoons on television, but Albie is trying to communicate something deep and real. And when I was seeing those, seeing those plays, reading those plays, watching the movie, I was like, Oh, there's something real and deep and true in here that I respond to. And so to attempt the seriousness, the seriousness of the attempt to communicate like that, to communicate in that way, to communicate something of that depth and truth of that personalness. It's again, it's dangerous to cross the line from the audience and to the stage to say, I have something to say. I can say it seriously. Look at me. I'm a person and I'm trying to tell you where it hurts. I'm trying to tell you what's wrong. I'm I'm trying to tell you, I'm trying to get through past the barrier of communication onto the other side where we all share a common knowing. Mm -hmm. That's a big thing to ask of yourself. It's a pretentious thing, but it doesn't mean that you can't do it if you practice long enough. But that first step to say, I want to be like my idols. I think there is part of me that can get to that place. That is an, that is an outrageous active hubris to say, I'm going to write a fucking play. It was for me because I held these people in such high esteem. Sure. It's, it's the old, a man's reach must exceed his grasp or what's a heaven for. So you're reaching for Albie, believing there's no way you can achieve it, but you're going to reach. Also, you're going to grab. Yeah. With no idea what a playwright's life is actually like, Uh, you know, that's one of the stranger things, like all you've got, is the two shelves in Barnes and Noble and Tennessee Williams essay, The Tragedy of Success. And from that, you can maybe piece together, but you don't know what the life is day to day, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Anyway, I wrote this 10 minute play. It pissed everyone off. (laughs) The Baptists angry. The chair of my department was so upset. 
the theater history teacher was a big champion of the play, you know, um, but it made people physically uncomfortable. And again, I was like, this is the stuff. Mm -hmm. I made them laugh with the article. This play makes them very angry. There's something here. Yes. So I wrote this 10 minute play. And around that time, Baylor uh, had started collaborating with Horton Foote. Yes. Um, Horton, they knew Horton through a man named Marion Castleberry, who is the graduate director. So they started a festival to honor Mr. Foote and Mr. Foote would come in and just, it was, it was really amazing, but it was hard to understand at the time. He would sit there and he would just talk and he would talk about uh, Geraldine Page and the Pasadena Playhouse and working on To Kill a Mockingbird and working with Robert Duvall. And, you know, he would tell these, these amazing stories again, no context. Like it's hard to articulate. You're a young person coming from the hinterlands and you're sitting here in this golden auditorium listening to listening to someone who's lived the life oh yeah who has been involved in both theater film and theater film and television like we're like playhouse 1960 who's lived a, a storied life and the gap is so big that it is it seems impossible to pass right yes yes the journey, the journey seems so strange and so long and so circuitous, but, but somebody did it. And that person is sitting there on the stage, like you're in the audience and he's on the stage, but, and somehow, because Horton is, um, Horton is from a, perversely, he's from a small town called Wharton. Horton's from Wharton and Wharton is just a different, one of these communities that's a little bit further out of Houston. Right. Uh -huh. So, so there was like this insane sort of just physical resonance. This person that comes from where you came from has gone where you want to go. And whether or not you understand the stories, you understand the physical artifact of a body that's made the journey that you want to. That's mm. learned, that's survived to tell the tale, you know? Anyway, so, and then we did a lot of Mr. Foote's plays and a lot of his friends started coming down from New York uh, you know, it was, uh, Harris Eulen showed up at one point. Um, oh, one of the amazing acting teachers, I can't remember, Romulus Linney, uh, came down, um, just really like just wild people. And one of the guys that started coming was a man named Kurt Dempster and Kurt ran EST, the ensemble studio theater on right, right. 52nd between 10th and 11th. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, you know, it was, we would get these sessions with like, you know, Romulus Lenny read my awful 10 minute play and gave some very forceful and scatological advice uh, as he was wanting <laughs> to do. But sort of, and uh, Baylor started to form a relationship with EST. And uh, when I graduated, I spent a little time kicking around Waco, uh, waiting tables and bartending. And and then I got a call from Marion Casper, the graduate director, and he was like, would you like uh, would you like to come up with us for two weeks to upstate New York to develop? I'd written a full length by uh, this time based on that 10 minute play and develop your play. And I was like, it was about a year and a half out of undergrad and I was sleeping on my grandmother's couch. Mm -hmm. And I was like, you know, you can make good money bartending in Waco, but like, I don't know what the fuck I was doing, right? <laughs> I didn't know whether, I didn't know. I don't know. I couldn't stay on a couch for the rest of my life. Anyway, so I went up to uh, to EST's summer retreat where they developed these plays. It was supposed to be a two-week session. 
started getting into the nitty gritty, right? This was my first like real taste of what it's like to develop a play. Like, what does it mean? So you've written your first draft and like, you've got years to go before anybody even sees it on stage. You know what I mean? You've just got a lifetime of things to learn. But I stayed up there and then I took other classes. I refused to leave. Eventually they had to put me on staff. <laughs> At the end of the summer, I went back home, uh, sold my car and then moved to um, a terrible, terrible little apartment on 118 between First and Pleasant in Spanish Harlem. Wow. And I worked with EST for the next decade. And eventually they were, they produced hand to God, you know, they produced, they produced my first play, one of my 10 minutes. And then that play ran for nine months in EST's 99 seat theater. And uh, it, it was, it was a really, it was really beautiful. And the people that were there when I showed up as an intern, as a kid from Waco were there when we were nominated for the Tony, you know, when we won the OB. What an amazing story. It's crazy. Like it's, it's, it's insane. Kurt passed, Kurt, the artistic director passed about two years after I, I got up to New York, but the community, I mean, the, it, it was people very say supportive, it. very, very instructive, a very, well, well obviously very valuable. It was the thing. It is the thing. I don't need to tell you plays are so hard to make. Oh, I can't even imagine. And everybody's at different points in their journey, but you in the big floating sea and the miasma that is the off off scene, mm-hmm. you like, you just, you have to, you have to just find your people and hang on to them so tightly, you know, like that play hand of God is written for the actors that performed it, Steve Boyer and Geneva Carr, you know, and it happened. We were, We'd done a we'd done a ten minute play. EST had a uh, they would do it. It's called the one act marathon. They would do it every year. Mm-hmm. And I'd written a play in that, and Geneva had been in it, and we were at the opening night, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, sipping wine out of plastic cups, and Geneva was sitting next to Stephen, and they were talking with another actor named Haskell King, and it was one of those. It was just one of those watershed moments where I was like sipping my wine, and I wasn't even talking. I was just looking at the three of them interact, and I was like, "What? What play has all of my favorite actors in it?" Hmm. And so, and then I w- went home and I I wrote the first Tyrone's first monologue from from Hand to God, and it was again. No one should have done that play. I was a weirdo that hadn't gone to Yale. Yeah. I'd spent at that point five years knocking around off off Broadway and just and making drinks, right? Killing myself, working doubles at a Greek restaurant. Mm. So then I could I could write around the hours. But I had been there. They knew me, right? Like I spent most of my life. I spent most of my life in New York sweeping that stage, taking tickets going to writing classes, putting up 10 minute plays. And so when this opportunity came, we did the play. Uh, I was a part of a group called Young Blood, which was their young writers incubator. Right. So we did a reading of the play. All right. That play on first reading was still crazy. People <laughs> went fucking nuts. And Steve, <laughs> the guy that we'd gotten to do the lead had made a puppet for the fucking reading. And that puppet was getting wild laughs. So we do the reading. Uh, the artistic director at the time, Billy Carden, was there. So, 
okay. And then, you know, I, we get two or th- I got two or three other mid-level readings, you know, not an MTC, not an MCC, but like a, a groups I was part of P73, wonderful play development company. So then a year later, ESD has another summer retreat. This time we're going to um, the university in the Hamptons and it's been a year and we've developed the play and the play's gone through several, several iterations, done the hard work. And we do the play again, and Billy Carden's there. And they wanted to start a late-night reading series at the Stony Brook Writers Conference. So we start this fucking thing at around 9 or 10. And people have been doing a, a full day of sessions on, on theater and poetry writing and short story writing. No one should be there. No <laughs> one should be there. No one should be asked to come to see a play reading at 9 o'clock at night. <laughs> regardless the goddamn thing was like a punk rock show it was somebody wrote a review of the reading because that experience was so electric i bet yeah and they'd figure we'd figured out a lot of the puppet shit we'd figured out a lot of the emotional arcs of the characters and i went so i had to be in a i had to be on the jitney the next morning at at 8 a.m so I was just, we drank all night. <laughs> I was so high off of that reading. And I went to a McDonald's in Midtown and ordered a McMuffin and cried my fucking eyes out wow. because I was like, we did it, you son of a bitch, right? Like not knowing, like Broadway was never the goal. Oh yeah, it was there so far down the, you're still just reaching. That's right. But it was, it was, God damn it. It was 2000. And golly, I don't even know, 2000 and something, (laughs) 2013, 2012. And I was just, I was like, this is, you know, regardless of what the success financially would have been, it was a success creatively. Mm -hmm. And then Mr. Carden was like, we need to find a way to do this play. They didn't have the money to do the play. They had to beg, borrow, and steal. We had cast the thing. We had the designers, and we still didn't have the money to do the play. But it came through. It was a leap in the net will appear kind of moment. And then we get did the goddamn play and it had to be extended two or three times. And it was this, it was wild too, because it did not get the best reviews the first time around. Hmm. It got middling reviews. Some people were like, this is too gross. I'm uncomfortable. And again, which is what I feed on, right? But then yes. we got a good review from Isherwood. Yes. And then timeout went back on their original bad review they went up they went up the editor was like listen we were kind of wrong about this <laughs> and then and, you know and then it moved. That never happens i know it's crazy oh. this play this play never should have happened it still shouldn't happen uh <laughs> at some point i'm gonna wake up and then you know and then we did it off broadway we did it at mcc the reviews got better and by the time they got to broadway they were convinced it was a good play oh. um and you know it so it, yeah it was absolutely a rocket ride and it was even stranger because it was uh, it was just nothing that i wanted like i just i would have been happy to write uh, to write weird funny westerns for off off broadway until i got a a, a grant big enough <laughs> you know yes the thing happened and we were well rob when you were developing this were they were there other obviously there were other playwright or aspiring playwrights in that first group that went up 
to the EST. Summer retreat? It's a summer retreat, right, right. Were there other playwrights in the room talking to you about this? Does it work just like other writing groups, which is you read part of it, somebody makes suggestions, somebody else criticizes, or was this uh, not writers, but actually performers and actors who were helping to shape this thing? Because it sounds to me, you know, I, I was a high school teacher. I taught writing, creative writing, and I used to tell kids all the time, you know, your first draft has nothing to do. You're going to you're going to work on this. You're going to revise this a thousand times. Is that what, in fact, happened? Did this get revi revised and revised and revised? I've asked you. I've asked you three questions here. <laughs> who else was in who else was involved? Were there were there other playwrights? Were there actors? And then how many revisions do you think it went through? Oh, I can show you the folder um, like it's it's impossible to explain to people who don't who don't do the job, who aren't in theater, aren't writers. Like it's hard to explain the entire job is taking notes, right? Mm -hmm. Like you get, if you've written a perfect play, the first thing out of the gate, you're still going to get notes. Yes. Yes. Always. It's the process. And like, in a lot of ways, the script is not a thing. It's like the moving point between multiple forces. Okay. What is your intent? What do they need? What do the actors need to be able to do their job? And it was very, it was very really high. It was highly collaborated at every point. Like at one point, oh man, there's a speech Marjorie gives the speech Marjorie gives to Pastor Greg in the second act. Like Geneva and I sat there during uh, tech rehearsals for the first production, and I was like, "You're frustrated. What? What is like? What do you want to say in this moment to this man?" And I had my phone recorder, and so we worked through both the literary versions and the version that she needed to get there emotionally, and that was how we. That's how we wrote the the play a lot of the times, and with comedy. Oh my God! What what a gift a gifted comedian is to a writer. I see. So it's like there are things, there's a literary joke. There's a, the joke you've written on the page, which is which could be good and could be funny. And some of those kill. And we had some that killed from beginning to end. But then there's the joke of intonation. And then there's the joke of movement. And then there are there's like, and I think every playwright needs to go through the journey of learning like your line is not as good as that man's face, right? Mm -hmm. Like you've written mm -hmm. sometimes they are, sometimes your line is. And part of the job, I would say. Once you get down there, 90% of the job is knowing when the line is better and when the look is better. Yes. Right? And when the timing is better, when the pause is as important as the line or as important as the look or or just the, the deadpan look that doesn't say anything. And then after you, let's say you've written a good play and you've gotten it up and it's been well reviewed and you get an award, then you got to publish the motherfucker. <laughs> and when you publish the thing, it's an entirely different process because you're like, if you've been working with two or three or five or eight actors and a director, there's a text that all of you have internalized. The script has a lot to do with it, but the performance text is now fairly baked into your bodies. But then if you're publishing the thing, you've got to figure out how to then reverse engineer that. So you have to make the script in such a way that now it's the recipe to get to that ideal physical performance text that you've all crafted together but also you have to leave it open enough for interpretation for your collaborators that you don't know that are in other cities. Mm -hmm. Somebody who can reproduce, who can bake the cake from the recipe and reproduce it accurately. The printed script, the script that's published, 
often includes things like stage directions and things that came out of the original production and weren't necessarily part of, of you know, your original thoughts. But I don't think a lot of people understand what you just said, how much goes into the creation of the play, the workshopping of the play, the finalizing of the play, the publishing of the play. There's just so much going on. That's why I love to talk to writers about this, because it's just fascinating to me. And there's so much that you have no, like, again, you're sit, you're 18 years old and you're sitting in the Barnes and Noble in Waco, Texas, and you've got the script for Shanley's Doubt, right? You're yes. reading that and you're like, what the fuck is this play? I have no idea what this play is. But the thing is that you really super don't understand is all of the skills that you as a young person are going to need to learn before you get anywhere near that. You're going to have to master like your own sense of, um, of routine of how do you write? You're going to have to, how do you talk to actors? How do you talk to directors? How do you sell yourself to an artistic director? How do you manage to stay, if you're not independently wealthy, I was not, how do you stay in New York long enough to master those skills? Hmm. Okay. So you've written a half decent play. Now you got to produce. Yeah. You got to talk to commercial producers. Now you have to weather a bad review. Now you have to, like, now you've got business concerns. Now you've got to talk to publishing now you've got to learn how to give a talk back now you have to learn how to give an interview i still don't know how to do that so i mean you just like the the never the, the onion never stops getting peeled except it's in reverse there are more bigger layers to the onion and then don't get me started on hollywood <laughs> Well, I, I was going to get you started on Hollywood, but a little bit further down the down the road here. <laughs> the, up, I actually do have to hop off in 10 minutes because, oh, 10 my, minutes. because, because my Hollywood job begins. OK, good. Well, you know what? Let, let's just quickly ask. Uh, I do want to talk a little bit about Hand to God without giving too much away, because, again, I'm actually trying to sell tickets here. I, I don't want to give away the whole story, but um, it, it, it was obviously inspired in some ways by, by all of the things you have already talked about, including the puppet ministry that your mom had, including your feelings about how religion has gotten so screwed up in this country, and, and more than this country, I, I would add. Um, and so all of those things, did you intentionally sit down saying and say to yourself, I have a story that I want to tell? Or did you say to yourself, I have an idea that I want to convey, and I think through the through a, a boy and his puppet and his puppet ministry is the best what came first the chicken or the egg well i i, I think neither i think the i think the waitress <laughs> came first and asked what you wanted uh, i think no the, <laughs> what happened it's hard it's it's so hard to say because you know crucible of my unconscious like all that kind of bullshit but um the character and when i say the character i mean the puppet yes yes like the puppet's voice was so clear and it uh, in a lot of ways the writing process was similar to what you see in the play where mm -hmm. there is a sort of possession that happens somehow, yes, somehow. And, right. and the voice begins to come clear and strong and true. And in the play, that's disastrous effect. But once I sort of like, once I had my actors and then the voice came through, the rest of the play followed shockingly quickly you know it was i had you know for me in those days when i was writing a play it would be like can i see what the close can i see what the end of the first act is and the second act is if i can see that i feel safe enough to start writing the play mm -hmm. but this one and this one it was like it really was like writing the lightning because that that play runs on both deep 
emotional moments and then transgression. Yes. And I, that's what I live for as a theater goer, as a consumer of media. Like I want transgression and I want real, honest to God, human emotion. I'm, I'm not as interested in the more cliched beats that we all know of either grief stories or redemption stories. Mm -hmm. But what I want, like, how does it, what, what does it really feel like to fall apart? What is falling apart in real time look like? And the play's preoccupied with that. So, well, do you think that's why this play has gotten such, has had such a strong response, has had such a lightning fast rise, has evoked so many uh, emotions in people? I mean, it, it's just a, uh, well, as you said before, it's it's sort of like it shouldn't have happened. It, it shouldn't have happened so so amazingly fast, and it's just been so successful. Well, yeah, and it's I mean the the elevator pitch for this is a disaster because it, there's no way to do it right. A, a, a boy in a puppet ministry is puppy gets possessed by the devil, and then you leave that that leaves out most of the sex. Yeah, right. And it le it leaves out all the grief, right? Mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. it's it's. It, the play is, is is a terrible play from the perspective of marketing. Well, then why uh, is it so successful? I think it's because of the surprise. Yeah. yeah. I think it's like people go in, if they think if they think they're going to get a naughty puppet show, then they get this like, <laughs> then they get like a philosophical dialogue about Jesus. Oh, my and Lord. And they get like a, a journal entry on, on depth of grief, right? And if they sure. come in thinking they're going to see a story about like uh, a story about grief, they end up getting puppet sex. You know, I mean, there's like, there's something for everyone, but also <laughs> there's, there's something that's going to surprise everyone. And then it's also the, just the, just the economics, the creative economics of the theater where it's like, we've got five wonderful actors. Uh, we've got a kid that wants to do the puppet work. I will say the puppet will always get his laughs. Um, so, and it's, it doesn't, it's not the most expensive play in the world. Sure. Small cast, easy set. And that's one of the things I'm most proud about is that this is, like you said, 2016, the most performed play in the country. It was not necessarily being performed at the Goodman. It wasn't necessarily being performed at, uh, they did do it at the alley, but it wasn't necessarily at the, like the high holy regionals. It was at a lot of 99 seat, 99 seaters. It mm -hmm. was, a, it was a lot of, which is where the play was born. Yes. Those intimate theaters, it plays very well in the closeness of it. You're not, you don't want yeah. to look at it from the, the, the last row of the balcony where you're watching a chorus line. And if we had, if we had hours and hours to talk, like we would talk about what it's like seeing the play in a 99 seater and seeing it at the booth on the Broadway, mm -hmm. what 99, 99 seats does versus 900 seats. Yes. But yeah. it's a comedy. People want to laugh. It's small cast. And it's and it's a surprise, you know. You see, hand to God, and there's a devil on the postcard, and people are either like, "Well, I'm I'm not interested in that," or like, "What the fuck is going on at this, at this theater that I support?" And uh, yeah, so I I don't know. It's weird. It's unique. It's got a perspective, and 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 you get a couple laughs. I don't want to keep you too much longer, but I, one quick question: Can you tell us anything about what you're doing out there in Hollywood? Uh, I'm right now. I am a uh, co-executive producer on a uh, television show called The Umbrella Academy on Netflix. Oh, I love uh, it! 
Oh, good. I oh, love it. Yeah, yeah. My, my grandchildren, we, we all love it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we make that. Um, I'm going to go start cooking that in a couple of minutes here with the rest of the writer's room. Um, I have a, a, a pilot, uh, a series in development with Peacock. Mm-hmm. His streaming service. Sure. Um, that's a lot of fun. I've got a couple more things. I mean, like I've got you know movie stuff. I'm working on another play, a musical. All, all you know, all of the things. I'm doing. Yes. I'm doing. I'm doing all of the things. You're doing all the uh, Hollywood stuff. I'm doing. I'm doing all the stuff. Trying to get <laughs> stuff made. Trying to just uh, take my dog for a walk uh, and not get crazy. <laughs> Rob Eskins, thanks so much. <laughs> Looking so forward to editing this. But <laughs> and beeping it. I yeah. will drop you a line when it, when it's going to drop. And again, thanks for joining us here on Off-Road. My pleasure. Take care. Yeah, have a good one. Bye-bye. Bye. Yes, I know. You can see now where the sense of humor comes from and how the play got to be so funny. And I, I know I've spent a lot of time talking about Hand to God, but it is RLTP's podcast. But I'll tell you something else. I've seen a lot of other shows. I've seen more shows in the last couple of weeks than I have in a very long time. And Photograph 51 at JRT and, oh, The Woman in Black at the Kavanoki and The Band's Visit at Shays, A Chorus Line at O'Connell and Company. I've been around. And this doesn't even include shows I haven't had a chance to see yet, like Songs for a New World over at Second Generation and Curious Case of the Dog in the Nighttime that I'm going to see this coming weekend. And it's, there's a lot going on and so much that I actually really want to see. And I would recommend all of them, except, well, some of them may be closed by the time you hear this. But get out and see some live theater, starting with Hand to God. But there is so much going on right now in the Buffalo Theater community. It is so welcome and refreshing, a breath of fresh air after being locked up for 20 months. Just grab your Excelsior Pass and your mask and get out there and support local theater. Okay, so what's coming up next on RLTP's Off-Road? Well, we're going to get away from theater. I've been harping on it too much. And we're going to talk to a woman who is the president of the Buffalo Urban Development Corporation. Her name is Brandy Merriweather. What a delightful lady. First African-American president of Budsey, as she calls it. Buffalo Urban Development Corporation. They are doing amazing work in this Buffalo Renaissance that we are all enjoying, and they have more things coming down the pike. So that's in two weeks, right here on Off Road with me, Pete Pomisano. Mm-hmm.